Welcome back this week to the High Motor Podcast. Andrew Doughty here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. And here is what we're going to do today. First, in a couple of minutes, Mitch Light is going to come on for some college football talk. Mitch is the managing editor over at Athlon Sports. He's going to join us from Nashville. He's also on the Cover 2 Podcast with Braden Gall. I want to talk to him about college football, specifically some coaching stuff. And then I have a handful of is this jumping the gun questions for him. For example, if I say Nebraska can't compete for the Big Ten West title this year, 2019, is that jumping the gun? So Mitch will be on in a minute. And then after him, Daniel Parlagreco will be on for some NFL draft talk. His draft guide just came out, got a ton of questions for him. Combine this week, draft just two months away. So we'll have Daniel Parlagreco on for some NFL draft talk after Mitch. And then after him, I had some media time with Mel Kuyper Jr. last week. So I want to play some of his answers to questions. He had some good stuff, uh, particularly about the the number one overall player, Nick Bosa, and then Josh Allen, who Kuyper has just behind Bosa. Again, Bosa, the number one prospect for him. He's making that very clear, but the gap between Bosa and Allen uh, is not all that big. And then some other stuff from Kuyper, too. He had some interesting comments about Jared Stidham. So let's fire it up here on the High Motor Podcast. Mitch Light now joining the High Motor Podcast. Mitch, I'm glad that I could pull you away from the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga Oscars video for a moment. I'm curious, did your office block your YouTube page yet? Uh, I might be blocked from YouTube, but it definitely is not nothing to do with Lady Gaga and or Bradley Cooper, I can assure you that. I'm not sure if I even want to ask the follow-up question to that, why you are blocked, but now I kind of want to know. Don't ask, hey, you know, they say don't ask the question if you don't want the answer. I don't know, do people say that? I think maybe people, I think we're in different generations, so maybe people in your generation say that. Oh, are we in different generations? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't know that you were a 30-year-old, but maybe... I I was 30 at one point, years ago. <laughs> All right, before we get into some college football stuff here, I, I got a question for you. Last time we chatted, um, I was down there in Nashville in February, and I forgot to ask you this. So you guys dropped the, the baseball magazine recently, like maybe a month ago, four or five weeks ago, right? Uh, yes, I think late um, late January. So I'm, yeah, I'm I, curious, what was the, the Bryce Harper watch, the Manny Machado watch, basically the watch with all of the 100-plus late-signing free agents like in your office? Like you're putting together this magazine, and you're waiting for, I don't know, like a fifth of the league to sign. How, how did that go in your office when you're releasing this? Do you just understand? I know last year we talked about, like, for example, the Fantasy Football Magazine, when I think it was like the night – that you press send to your publisher, Hunter Henry went down. That's a little bit different because it's one guy. But when you're sitting here with 100 guys that haven't signed, what do you even do about that? Well, actually, the Hunter Henry thing, not to go too deep into the woods, you think it's only one guy, but that actually had affected, and I counted the pages at the time a lot. Because, when you have, like in fantasy football, obviously, if he's down for the year, we got to take him out of our rankings, take his caps off. So that affects their other tight ends, who I forgot their other tight end. You know, they they hadn't signed Antonio Gates at that point, and that affects Philip Rivers. It affects their running game. So there was tons of stuff that that affected Andrew on deadline. The baseball one—it's just something we've I've come to I've learned to live with. You know, our deadlines are earlier than I would like, but I don't make those decisions. You know, we usually. 
you know, stories come in about a week to 10 days before our deadline, and we, we edit them, and we go through the fact check and all that stuff through the process, and we just have to stay the nimble. That's the word we use. If something happens, we, we need to make changes. You know, I, I usually don't do this, but my Yan- guy who writes my Yankee story was really proactive and really eager to help. He actually submitted a story with Machado, too. Because at that point, it looked like the Yankees were, you know, definitely in the running for him. So we, if they would have signed Machado two hours after we sent to the printer, I had a new shortstop section or a new middle infield third base, you know, section, new lineup, all that stuff. Um, you know, with those free agents, it's the trades that really get us on deadline because that affects multiple teams. The free agent signings usually just affect one team and then maybe our fantasy football, our fantasy rankings and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, of all the sports we do, baseball is kind of the, the – quote-unquote worst as far as being on deadline because, like you said, there's so many guys that are unsigned. So you're sitting on a Manny Machado Yankees content. You're kind of sitting on, like, the the uh, Super Bowl champion hats that don't get handed out. Exactly. That is, that's exactly it. I would, you know, um, maybe I should try and sell the Yankee story with Machado. It's uh, I could probably fetch maybe 10 cents for it. But on a related note, um, I... When I lived in, when I was younger, when I was part of your generation, well, I was never part of your generation. When I was in, you know, when I was a, a when you were man, a fit, good-looking thirty-year-old. Yes, now I'm just a good-looking forty-seven-year-old. <laughs> um, I lived in New York City. One of my good friends worked for the NFL, and it was kind of the expansion. And in his he was a, he was a designer. In his office, he had like three or four mock-ups for Jacksonville Jaguar and Carolina Panthers helmets and logos that didn't make the cut. So I always thought that was funny, all these really weird logos uh, that, that didn't make it. But he had helmets and uniforms, like all mock-ups and stuff, so that was kind of fun. All right, let's get some college football. I was going to end with this, but I looked it over again right before I gave you a call, and I kind of want to start with it. Uh, I was never, when I was a kid, I was never like an eat-your-dessert-before-your-meal kid in grade school, but that's kind of what I want to do here today, and I have a handful of things for you. Um, I'm just going to read a statement. I have five of them. I'm going to read each one. And I want you to tell me if that statement is jumping the gun. So I'm going to start with this one. Nebraska can contend for the Big Ten West in 2019. Is that jumping the gun? Yes. In fact, I just wrote something up, uh, games to watch uh, for each conference, and I, I put in that Nebraska-Ohio State this year could be a, uh, you know, a, a preview of the 2020 Big Ten championship game. I think, I mean, contend, it, I, it kind of means, the de- what's your definition of the word contend? Can they go, uh, you know, five and four, six and three and hang around, you know, Iowa or Wisconsin or Northwestern or whoever you like? Sure. Um, but I, I think they'll be better. I think they were a lot better last year. Their record wasn't that much better, but, you know, here, here's, here's a stat that uh, I love. 2017, Nebraska lost four games by more than 20 points. Last year, they lost one game by 20-plus points. And their margin of their scoring margin last year was minus 1.3 per game. It was minus 10.6 the year before. So I'm a big believer in, you know, just don't look at a team and say, oh, they went 6-6 six and six or 5-7, and because in college football, definitely not all 5-7s and sevens are created equally. There's Scoring margin matters. And they clearly got better for all the people who, you know, think everyone's jumping the gun on Scott Frost. The numbers say he got better. But I'll say you're jumping the gun just a bit to say that they can contend this year. Yeah, absolutely, especially in the, in the Big Ten West, where I think the schedule you know means everything. I was looking over the Big Ten schedule the other day, and like Minnesota, for example, they don't draw. I think they only draw from the East Penn State, and that one's at home. So they don't draw Michigan State, depending on what you think of the Spartans. They don't draw um, Michigan 
or Ohio State. So I think this is a year like where you could see a 9-10. I don't think they'll get to like 11, but you could see Minnesota go 10-2 and in the regular season. And I think that the Gophers are going to take a step forward, but a 10-2 and record coming from the Big Ten West could be extremely deceptive when you're not drawing uh, those type of teams from the East. But let's, let's stay in the Big Ten East. Let me say James Franklin won't have another 10-win season at Penn State. Is that jumping the gun? Yeah, I think you're jumping the gun there. I, I think uh, he's had some really good teams. That, you know, last year wasn't uh, his best team. Two years ago was his best team. Um, you know, I, I think what they they won lost two games overall. One was the the game they lost a double digit lead in the second half at Ohio State, and they lost. Um, what was the other one they lost? Uh, drawn, drawn a blank. It was another, I think they lost a double digit lead as well. They, in the, the advanced numbers, all those numbers there. If you look at it from two years ago, that was a team that was probably good enough to win the national championship. Um, I think they've you know a lot some defections this year. I think the numbers are a little inflated. I don't know how many really key guys they're gonna they're gonna lose. Uh, obviously, the quarterback position. You, you think Tommy Stevens is kind of ready to to to, to uh, take control there? I don't know how good they're gonna be this year, but I'm I'm still a James Franklin believer. I'd be very surprised if he does not have another ten win season at Penn State. So my follow up question for you, and it, and it seems like you might have kind of already hinted at the answer to it. Do you think James Franklin is Penn State head coach five years from right now? I do. I do. If you would ask me, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd maybe say no. One thing that I don't get, and I, I mean, a little background, I know James Franklin. I mean, uh, he was a sideline reporter at Vanderbilt, and he was here at Vanderbilt for five years. I am not, wouldn't claim to be good friends with him, but I definitely know him, spent some time around him. I don't get all the James Franklin NFL buzz that you hear from time to time. Now, that's died down a little bit. It seemed like he was out there a couple of years ago. I think he's made for the college game. And I might be contradicting myself here. I think he might not be a, a great long-term fit, like a 15-year coach, a 15-year guy. I think he can wear thin on people, um, you know, fans, players, and all that stuff. So um, five years, I think, is a good, you know, barometer, like, you know, over-under line there, you know, for, for Penn State. I think the fact that he's a Pennsylvania native and it's kind of been literally his dream job, uh, I'm more apt to say he'll be there for, for a while. But I, I don't think he's there in eight or ten years. Yeah, I think a lot of that NFL buzz, not necessarily for him specifically, but you look at a lot of coaches. I remember seeing, I think, I don't know who wrote it, and it, and it didn't really matter who wrote it, but they said James Franklin has a little bit of NFL experience, and I knew he had some, but not a lot, and then I went back. I didn't realize that his NFL experience entailed one year as the Packers receivers coach. So if we're sitting here that saying James Franklin could potentially have an NFL career in his future because he had one year as a receivers coach under, uh, I probably would have been, um, I'm blanking on Mike Sherman, I'm not sure if that yeah. really qualifies as significant NFL experience. Um, let's stay with yeah, the. And, and, I mean, just in the, in the day and age we live, I think unfortunately people just they say a successful black coach in college, maybe he should, the NFL right. should look at him. Right. You know, I you know, certain guys have qualities for the NFL, certain guys don't. It has nothing to do with their color. I just think James Franklin's a more of a college guy. Let's stick with coaches, and I want to talk about Willie Taggart here and ask you this. Um, so Willie Taggart, his first year at Florida State, was completely dis- disastrous. I know that you and Braden have talked about that in the Cover 2 podcast a little bit. So am I jumping the gun by saying it was so disastrous that he can't come back from it and will never have the Seminoles competing for playoff spots, plural? So I'm not, not so like an, an annual thing, but regularly in that playoff conversation late in the season. That 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 is a hot take. Um, I don't know the answer to that, and uh, I'm thinking as I'm speaking because I want to try and make sense here. Um, 
obviously Clemson being at the top of its game right now and being in the same division hurts Florida State. Um, it you know just obviously the path is not is it's more difficult than it used to be. I, I'm gonna if you ask me, will Willie Taggart ever have the Florida State in the playoff? I'm gonna say no. But I don't. I think it's more like 55-45 no. Um, I think there was a, there, there were enough troubling signs at Florida State this year. Just you know, kind of things we've talked about. But you know, just kind of maybe a little bit of lack of an organ, lack of organization and all that stuff that that really raised some red flags. And when he was hired there, you compared him to Dan Mullen at Florida. And my take was that hey. Dan Mullen's a better football coach. He's, he's got a better track record. You know, I know Willie Taggart's won some games, but Dan Mullen is, is a great coach. But Willie Taggart's probably going to beat him on the recruiting trail, and he's going to have better players. Dan Mullen's going to have to quote-unquote coach him up. Well, I know it's only one year, but Willie Taggart didn't kill it on the recruiting trail. And maybe, maybe it was because of the season they had, but if you're Florida State, you, you, you were kind of a train wreck on the field and you did not clean up in recruiting as you expected to. So that really gives me some pause there. So I, I'm going to say no, he will not have them in the playoffs. You mentioned Dan Mullins. So let me do this one for you. Dan Mullen will win national championships, championships plural, as Florida head coach. I would say 100% yes to national championship. Very difficult to win multiple national championships, um, unless you're obviously you know Alabama or... Uh, Clemson. Uh, if I had to, if I had to answer this question, I would say yes. I, I'm, I'm a, always been a big Dan Mullen believer. I'm a believer in the University of Florida football. How can you not be um, with all they have going for it? So I think, I think he can and will win multiple national championships there. I think the timing is probably pretty good. I say that, that that at some point, you know, Nick Saban will retire and Alabama will just go from being a dominant program to a good program again. What you're looking for, what you're looking at then is Georgia. I think the Florida-Georgia battles over the next decade could be just awesome. Last one for you for jumping the gun by next year. So the 20, we'll just say the 2020 calendar year by next year, every college football player can transfer without sitting out a season. Is that jumping the gun? I think it's jumping the gun. I don't think we'll be there. Uh, yet, um, I have said many times I'm not in favor of immediate eligibility. I'm in favor of being able to transfer. I don't. You, you should you should be able to transfer from Alabama to Auburn if you want. Um, but there's nothing wrong with sitting out a year. Um, not to be old school and all that, but you know if you if you want to go somewhere else and that's fine. But you can sit out a year, get better, get bigger, stronger, faster, and learn the playbook. So um, you know. It's kind of fun as college football fans to say, oh, we get to watch Justin Fields this year. We don't have to, you know, guys that, that, that are certain to be kind of three and out guys, you know, go to the NFL after three years. Selfishly, I don't want them to sit out because I want to see them all three years, but I just think for equity and, and kind of keep preventing chaos, I would not like to see kind of the, the term everyone uses in free agency. So I had a sixth one in there. I had something about USC, but I, I kind of took it out because I think it's a bigger discussion than just a are we jumping the gun? So last month on the show, I had Ben Bolch from the Los Angeles Times. We were talking about uh, Steve Alford's firing. It was you know a few weeks after that, and talking about candidates, all that kind of stuff. I asked Ben where, in his opinion, the, the Pac-12's well-documented financial gap kind of plays into that coaching search. Um, you know, could that potentially turn off a big fish that they're chasing? Whether that's Tony Bennett or whoever. And he actually kind of flipped it around me, which I wasn't expecting at all. He thinks that it could be attractive to some candidates, as in you're not entering 
a conference dominated by one program. You know, there's plenty of room to really take over the conference, dominate West Coast recruiting, reel off a lot of Pac-12 titles, and make some tourney runs. So my question to you is, Ben gave his basketball opinion on that for UCLA. I'm looking for your football opinion for USC if they do make a change with Clay Helton uh, during or after next season. Do you think that the Pac-12's financial gap, we won't get into the details here because I know both of you and I know that we don't know the numbers all that well with that, but do you think that the Pac-12's financial gap um, will be more of a deterrent or even a possible attraction for whoever you know their top targets may be, Dino Babers, Kyle Whittingham, obviously we're speculating there, but which side do you see those financial issues playing in a potential hiring scenario for USC? Uh, it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting discussion as it relates to UCLA basketball. I don't want to overthink it. I think it's got minimal minimal factor on USC. I think it's still any prospective coaches like it's USC. I should be able to recruit who I want. I should be able to dominate. I should be able to compete for national championships. You know, coaches have big egos. They think they can win uh, anywhere. If not, you know, Kansas and. Vanderbilt and schools like that, to name two that we both know very well, uh, might would have more trouble hiring coaches. Everyone thinks they can win. USC is obviously on a different plane, um, and you know I, I can't see a coach not wanting to go there because wow, the, the you know Oregon's got a ton of money, Washington's got a ton of money. I don't think I can win as much, or vice or the other way around. Like I'm definitely going to USC now. Wow, I can really dominate because the rest of the league has no money. So uh, again, interesting topic it's something that's affecting the league and will impact you know every program in that league how much money they get from tv but i think ucla i mean usc can stand on its own as a job to win at so usc could potentially have a first year head coach uh next year if they do move on from clay helton i mentioned uh, your cover two podcast i was catching up on some of the episodes the other day and you and Braden were talking about grades from your first year 2018 coaches i think there were 21 or 22 i want to say 21 and then uh, this year we got 27 new head coaches. And I know this is going to be in your 2019 college football preview coming out later this spring. But right now I'm curious which hires you're, you're kind of on the edges. And when I say edges, I mean hires that you absolutely loved and ones that you didn't understand at all. So let's start with the first one. Which 2019 hires do you absolutely love? I'm going to preface this by saying some of them made sense, and I think some of them are going to work out well. I didn't – I. For whatever reason, this year, like, I don't look at any of these and say, wow, those are definitely going to work. You know, like, it seems like every year there's two or three that, like, what a home run perfect fit there, that guy's going to win big. That being said, I'll give you my top five because I've already written for the, for the, uh, for the magazine is Scott Satterfield at Louisville, Neil Brown at West Virginia, Chris Kleeman. Is it Kleeman or Kleiman? I've heard both. I always hear Kleiman. Like, you know, we have a huge FCS, uh, following here with our FCS writers, and they always say Kleiman, so I just roll with Kleiman. Okay, Kleiman at Kent State, who I think is just a great fit, you know, culturally there and all that. Matt Wells at Texas Tech, and then Dana Holgerson at Houston. So those are my top five. I mean, I think with Satterfield, he's been so successful at App State. Um, the, the, if you're looking to poke a hole in it, he's not been anywhere else. You know, you kind of like a guy who's been around different countries, recruited at different levels. Neil Brown, very successful offensive coordinator wherever he's been, and then, you know, uh, did a great job at Troy. I think won 30-something games in the last three years there. Uh, mentioned Kleeman. Matt Wells, very solid uh, at, at Utah State. One thing I, lo- I like about him is actually that's a tough job. Had immediate success. 
Then they had kind of a, the skids and then built them back up with a really fun offense this year. You know, early he's a defensive guy, but they were, they were with Jordan Love at quarterback. They were really, really good on offense, really fun. And then Holgerson, uh, you know, it's just a coup for Houston to hire away a successful um, coach from the, uh, you know, from the P5. One guy that I'm more familiar with, I think that the country will get to know him the next few years because it's a, it's local. Charlotte hiring Will Healy. I mean local because he coached Austin P. Did a phenomenal job at the FCS school, Austin P, which was maybe the worst FCS school in the country. Great recruiter, tons of energy. Charlotte, you kind of hear from the Conference USA people that's a kind of a sleeping giant there, so I think Will Healy will do a really good job there. Also like Mike Houston in East Carolina. Yeah, the Will Healy situation was really interesting because, as you know, and as most people are listening, that was the whole Mike Houston. He was going to go to Charlotte. Right. That got out. He didn't love that. Ended up at East Carolina. And Will Healy is a guy that um, my FCS colleagues Sam Herter and Brian McLaughlin have just absolutely raved about the last couple of years. They, I mean, he's, he's young. I think he's only 33 or 34 years old. Still. But yeah, yeah, yeah they're a guy. He's a guy that they've sat down with a couple of times and you know Brian's been been doing this for for 25 30 years we're in parade and sporting news and all that and he said there it's not often where he'll sit down with a, you know a younger coach and and you just see it something goes off in your head where you just absolutely see that this guy has it and you know Brian's not saying that this guy is going to be an absolute stud but in terms of off the field and in terms of just understanding what his role is in these student athletes live he he's been just completely raving about Healy he was shocked that he got an opportunity this quickly because he didn't think that everybody else saw it um Really quickly, before I go to the ones you didn't love, I want to go back to Matt Wells a little bit. I You mentioned kind of he had the great start at Utah State. I think he won like eight and then ten games in his first two years or nine and then ten. So he has 19 wins in his first two years, and then he drops down. They had a really tough 2016, then he kind of builds them back up. You touched on it a little bit. I personally love seeing that. I mean, it's kind of weird seeing a team that – that goes down that much going from a 10 win team down to three in just two years. But then I love seeing them come back up. How much do you like that? Is there any concern about when they drop down and go back up? Are you worried about any inconsistencies or do you like seeing that a coach can start hot, um, you know, flutter a little bit and then rebuild that program back upwards? Yeah, you, you can you can talk yourself into any argument. You know, obviously you can sit here and say, well, of course I wouldn't want him to dip. I'd want him to win 10 games every year. But, you know, Utah State is not an easy job. I mean, Logan, Utah is kind of remote. Um, there's a decent amount of players in that state, but you've obviously got BYU in, in Utah, which you're really not going to out-recruit there. So I like it. I like, you know, I, I like the fact that, that he built them back up because he was a hot name in coaching and then he wasn't a hot name and kind of, like I said, reinvented the program. I don't know if it was just taking advantage of the, the skills they had. They had a good junior college running back and then, and then you know, Jordan Love was was, was outstanding. And you know, I watched, remember watching that Friday night game at Michigan State. They could have easily won that game to open the season. So I think it shows a certain amount of – fortitude and all that, you know, any football cliche you want to throw out there uh, that he was able to build them back up. And I think he bring, you know, Texas Tech fairly or unfairly has just had the reputation of being kind of a finesse program over the years, and I think he, he will change that. Uh, I think it's kind of a new mentality bringing a defensive guy in there, so I'm looking forward to see what he can do at uh, Texas Tech. Alright, let's flip it around. We talked about the edges of guys that you, you, you loved, or at least you liked a lot, your top five. Um, then you also threw Will Healy in there, but let's flip it around. Which ones did you either despise or you were very confused by which of those 27 head coaches are you kind of wondering why that move happened a couple that uh, I didn't love didn't love Les Miles at Kansas I get the arguments for him and uh, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on that um, I, I'm more of the he didn't win you know his last three or four years at LSU were rather ordinary underachieved there 
with an offense that was kind of behind the times. He's done nothing to suggest that his offense, you know, he's changed his philosophy much. So if you can't win at LSU, other than like bringing some publicity to Kansas, you know, what's he going to do at Kansas? I didn't love that. Mac Brown at North Carolina, I'm just, I'm intrigued by, of course, and, you know, there's a lot of the same issue elements with Les Miles at Kansas, bringing a guy out of retirement. He's going to recruit very well. He's hired a good staff. So my opinion since I wrote this up has changed a little bit on, on Mac Brown, probably a little higher on that. Mel Tucker at Colorado is one that just boring, for lack of a better word. You know, like, I never... I'm never that intrigued by coordinators who've been successful at, co- at programs that are always successful. Sort of like Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. Yeah, he was good. He was a good defensive coordinator at Alabama, Florida State, and Georgia. You know what? So a lot of people could be good coordinators at those schools. Mel Tucker's been at Alabama in, in Georgia recently. So uh, I'm not. Again, I'm not in the. Hiring these guys, I'm not in a, a hotel room and a conference room in, in the Dallas airport, spending four hours like talking to the guy, and that's when you really need to figure out if you're an AD or school president if you got the right guy. But from the outside looking in, didn't love the Mel Tucker one. Michael Oxley at Maryland, I just think anybody who with with Google can look up his tenure at, at New Mexico, absolute train wreck on and off the field. He'll get players. He's already getting players there, but to me, you just. His track record in New Mexico would have been too much of a red flag. So, didn't love that one. Um, other than that, I mean, Scott Leffler at, at Bowling Green, boring. You know, he's not a very good, never seemed to be a very exciting offensive coordinator in his many stops. Um, so, those are those are a few that, that jump out. So, the, you mentioned the Mel Tucker one. How much of it is, I know you talked about kind of the whole coordinator thing, but how much of it is a, a geographic Concerned, I know that that football, college football, is kind of moving away from the, these geographical niches because of the exposure, because it's so easy to get across the country. The last ten years versus 30, 35 years ago, but still, you're looking at Mel Tucker. He's a guy that's been around. Like you know, he's coached at different programs, north, south. He's he's been in the NFL, but he hasn't really coached. I don't even think he's been west of Mississippi for any job, let alone a a college job. And he you know he built up his resume. Um, in the NFL a little bit, but then he had he kind of became that household name in Alabama and Georgia the last three years, and then goes to Colorado. To me, it kind of feels like when Mike Bobo was at Georgia for so long, I think he was at Georgia for his entire career, minus maybe one year uh, down in Florida, I want to say, and then he goes up to Colorado State, and he's kind of had a, a tough time there. So how much of your concern with Mel Tucker is geographical, going from where he built that name down in the southeast all the way out to Boulder. Do you think that there's any concern that he's just not going to get the type of player that he needs out in Boulder? Yeah, I'm looking at Mel Tucker's bio, and I think if my geography's right, uh, LSU in 2000, DB coach is the furthest west right. he's been. Yeah, yep. is, is Baton Rouge west of Chicago? I think so. Well, it's west of the Mississippi. Isn't it west of the Mississippi? Because yeah. doesn't the Mississippi yeah. run down? I know that you and Braden had a very heated talk about the Mississippi River a few weeks back. So yeah, well, I don't Braden, want I don't want to get too uh, much into that. Challenged. I, I pride myself on geography. So yeah, LSU is guys slightly west because Nashville is Chicago's just a little bit west of Nashville, and Baton Rouge is much further west. So, um, so to answer your question, um, not a huge concern. It would not be a reason I would not hire him. If I'm making a list of pros and cons, it might be on the con list, but I wouldn't say, you know what, I, I really like this guy, but I'm not going to hire him because of, um, you know, where he's coached. Like, depending on who you believe and, you know, reports, Derek Mason from Vanderbilt was a candidate for the job. Now, right. Mason spent a lot of his time all over the country, but at Stanford, like, I wouldn't hire Derek Mason over Mel Tucker because Derek Mason's coaching the Pac-12. Like, that wouldn't be a difference maker for me, but I think it's a fair point. 
All right, before we let you go here, each year, uh, early in the calendar year, right after the you know, playoff gets done, within a few weeks or a month, uh, your colleague Stephen Lassen writes college football's early top 50 players for that season. Uh, the 2019, I think, just came out a couple of weeks ago. And looking back at last year, I, I'm kind of curious to compare it. And Kyler Murray wasn't on that list last year. He wasn't even in uh, Stephen's just missed or next tier section, whatever it was. And it wasn't a snub. You know, had he been deep on that list. I don't think it would have been that big of a deal, but it definitely was not a a snub to keep Kyler Murray off of last year's early top 50 list. And this year's list, yeah, he published it on February 13th. Again, that's called College Football's Early Top 50 Players 2019. You can find that at athlonsports.com. And I'm not necessarily looking for you to to tell me who the next Kyler Murray is because it's kind of a, a foolish and unrealistic question, but is there anyone outside of that top 50 uh, with massive, massive upside that you could see being, let's say, one of the five or ten best players in college football by the end of the 2019 season? Yeah, I remember specifically thinking last year, maybe we were listening too much to Lincoln Riley, but it wasn't 100% that Kyler Murray was going to be the starter. There was a lot of Austin Kendall buzz, and maybe they were just coach speak there. So I remember the debate about, well, you know, and then again, obviously, if we knew he was a starter, no one could have predicted how good he would have been. And uh, and before I specifically answer this question, I like the way you phrased it because, you know, who's this Kyler Murray? Well, I wish I could tell you. I go and when the magazine comes out, I do all these radio interviews to promote it. It's like, who's this year's UCF? Well, if we knew, we would tell you, and we would have him ranked seventh in the country. You know, we wouldn't have him ranked 30th or something like that. So I get that's a, a fair question, but that's kind of my uh, response always. Like, we, we don't know. Yeah, um, I do I do remember you saying that last year. I think I actually brought it up earlier. Um, or At some point with Daniel Parlegreco, he's going to be on uh, the show after you here. But we, we've talked about, you know, who is this year's whatever draft prospect. And I remember you talking about this year's UCF. Well, if everybody knew who the seventh rounder was going to be that becomes a pro bowler, if everybody knew the Darius Leonard this year, you'd be plastering on every right. single magazine. Exactly. So, you know, I looked at Stephen's list to refresh uh, my, my memory. A couple guys stand out. I think K.J. Costello at, at Stanford could have a big year. Uh, you know, he's losing, obviously, J.J. or Sager Whiteside, their, their outstanding wide receiver. Khalil Tate is, you know, I don't have tons of faith in Kevin Sumlin, but he was just he was too good two years ago to, to-, to completely dismiss. That's assuming he stays in Arizona. There's some buzz that he could still leave as a grad transfer after spring practice. Uh, I think Tyler Hartley at Utah. They got hurt late last year. Could be really good. Andy Ludwig, new, new offensive coordinator. Cam Akers at Florida State. If the offensive line can get attacked together, which is a big if. He was a top, you know, running back recruit. You know, I loved in the, watching the playoffs. Uh, Isaiah Simmons from from Clemson. If you're yeah. looking for a defensive guy, yeah. kind of a hybrid linebacker safety. And here's a guy that's not going to win really any awards. His team's going to be down after last year. But I love watching Lynn Bowden play from. I don't know if you've seen him play from Kentucky. Yeah. It was a high school quarterback, I believe. He's a, he's a return specialist. I bet he's much more involved in the offense this offense this year with Benny Snell out. He's I think a wide receiver is his official position, but he runs the ball. He's a really fun guy to watch. So there's just a few guys that, that I was looking. Yeah, definitely get a little bit more attention with, with Benny Snell gone, and then Josh Allen got all the attention on the defensive side of the ball. So I am curious if he got it. When you were talking there, you mentioned um, you know, Lincoln Riley and not sure if they're going to go with Austin Kendall. Do you think Austin Kendall could be the type of player, not necessarily top five or top ten, but do you think we could be sitting here nine months from now talking about Austin Kendall as a top 25 or top 50 player in college football? My concern with him is the, is the supporting cast. I mean, they, they lose you know David Sills, they lose Gary Jennings Jr., they, they lose a lot of their – their weapons, uh, you know. I think I have faith in Neil Brown to, to to figure out an offense and find some playmakers there. 
I don't know. You know, Austin, we don't we don't know. I mean, you can sit there and say he sat behind the last two Heisman Trophy winners, so there's no crime in not winning the job there. He was highly recruited, but he's not like a five star. So um, I think anybody who claims to know what's going to happen with Austin Kendall is just you know just guessing because we just don't know at this point because we really haven't seen enough of him. All right, that's Mitch Light, managing editor of Athlon Sports. Mitch, always a pleasure. Really appreciate the time today. No problem, Andrew. Enjoyed it. Mitch Light on the phone calling in from Nashville. They're over there by the Grand Ole Opry, just east of downtown by the airport for anyone who's been in that area. I think despite all – Nashville gets a lot of love, especially lately. I think despite all the love that Nashville gets these days, it's still a very underrated city. I think that most – we'll say like most decent-sized cities, like those second, third, fourth-tier-sized cities have a really hard time – kind of living up to any sort of hype and delivering, in my opinion, but Nashville doesn't at all. We've made several stops over the last few years. It's always a really strong place to visit for a weekend, for a week, for a couple weeks, whatever. Highly recommend Nashville if you have not been there. We have Daniel Parlagreco on the horn for some NFL draft talk. His draft guide dropped recently. You can find that on Amazon, actually. Just uh, hop onto Amazon type in DTP's 2019 NFL Draft Guide. And Daniel, I want to start with something that you tweeted the other day. You asked, who's going to be that player that somehow gets into the first round, and we all say, what? I mean, those guys, I think last year, in my opinion, came in back-to-back picks. Seahawks taking Rashad Penny at uh, number 27, I think, and the Steelers taking Terrell Edmonds at number 28, uh, both of which, at least for me, and I think for most people, prompted a little bit of a stunned reaction. So, who do you think that those guys could be this year that are, and I know this is kind of a, a dumb, hard question. It's kind of like when everyone says, who's going to be this year's UCF? If everybody knew who this year's UCF was going to be last year or this year, we'd all be putting it everywhere. But I still want to ask you the question, who do you think could hop into that first round that right now they're, they're kind of like that consensus second or third round projections, but could stun us and go into the first round here in a couple of months? Yeah, you know, there's there's quite a few guys, but I tend to stick with uh, a question like this. I tend to stick with quarterbacks just because of the fact that teams are attracted, like we saw with Paxton Lynch here a few years ago with the Broncos. Teams are attracted by that fifth-year option on these quarterbacks, give, giving uh, you another year um, to have a guy that you don't have to pay top dollar to. And teams value that when it comes to a developmental quarterback that they can have that fifth year with. They have a couple extra years to develop. Um, they don't have to give top dollar to, so they'll actually trade into the back half of the first round if they have a guy that they're not completely sold that's playing the position yet. So I look at a guy like I would not be surprised. Um, I think Daniel Jones from Duke we talk about. I mean, that's, that wouldn't be a huge surprise, but the guy I, w- I also wouldn't be surprised if went early would be Will Greer from West Virginia. Um, you know, he's had a lot of success both with West, West Virginia and he plays as a freshman at Florida. And um, he's really, you know, some guys are huge on him. Some guys, you know, aren't so huge on him. I'm not as big a fan as some others. Teams love the fact that he's been a winner everywhere he's went. Um, you know, he's got mobility, throw the ball on the run, accurate quarterback. Doesn't have a huge arm, but good enough. Um, so he's a guy that I would look to. Some of these other athletic running backs, I wouldn't be surprised as well, especially with the fact that there's not really a top-tier uh, running back this year. And, of course, we have um, – you know, our guys over at Alabama, but, you know, they're they're very good, but I don't think they're going to be in the top 10 discussion. So I think you might see, you know, some of these guys go in the back half of the first round as well. 
I do want to ask you about one of those guys from Alabama, Josh Jacobs, here in a second. But first of all, um, I kind of want to flip it around and ask you which guys you think are current consensus first rounders, um, you know, whether that's top 10, top 15, top 20, but guys that are in the first round, um, your projections, most projections. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, God forbid somebody goes down at the combine or during pre-draft workouts with, with some type of injury or some off the field comp thing comes up. We can't predict that. And again, God forbid that happens. But as of now, so we're sitting here combine week, who's a guy that you could see maybe tumbling as teams take a deeper look at him that right now is completely a consensus pick and even up to, you know, mid to late April and then come draft night, he doesn't go off the board in the first round, may not even go off the board until like the late second round. There's, there's quite a few of those guys too. Uh, are you looking at one particular position or just across the entire draft? Just the entire draft, just somebody that, that everyone is kind of assuming that's going in the first round that is not necessarily like a token first round pick, but even if you think he's a first round caliber guy, but then, like I said, as teams start kind of digging into him, maybe he doesn't have a great combine, something like that, and he ends up completely falling out of the first round, much to uh, most people's surprise. Yeah, I think two guys come to mind. Um, yeah, obviously, I don't know how everybody's going to perform at the combine, but I think the two biggest uh, question marks because of now the injury concerns are both Jeffrey Simmons, defensive tackle in Mississippi State, who is who is pretty much a projected top ten pick, and then all of a sudden he's got the injury. Um, during his pre-draft process. He also had a little bit of, you know, he had some off-the-field issues uh, early on in his career as well that are going to need to be looked into. So he's a guy that was a consensus top 10 player. I think, uh, you know, there's going to be concerns about him. I think he'll probably drop now somewhere, I would imagine, back half of the round one or maybe even slide into the beginning of round two. I also think Deontay Thompson from Alabama, he also has an injury issue too. Uh, He's not going to be able to work out the combine this week. A guy that really kind of is a one-year player at Alabama, played as a single high safety guy, got a very rangy, big, tall, rangy guy. Um, I think, you know, there were some concerns about him. He started off the season really, really good um, this past season. Toward the back half of the season, he started dropping off a little bit. So I think some teams are a little concerned about him. Um, Those are two guys that immediately come to mind when I think about possibly could drop during this whole pre-draft process that we thought maybe would both be top 15 players. So where'd you have Jeffrey Simmons, um, you know, back, you know, whenever you want, you can talk about back in September all the way up to December, uh, pre-injury. And like you said, some of that off the field stuff, we've kind of known that has been there. We're not sure how teams are treating that. How did you, where'd you have Jeffrey Simmons graded, let's say a month or two ago versus right now? And where do you think he ultimately will be graded at least on your big board come April? I know that's kind of hard to project, but where do you think that he will be um, just in terms of a big board for you when, once we hit the actual the draft in April? Yeah, you know, I, I try to grade these guys. Obviously, I, I'm not interviewing them personally. I'm not a team. You know, I don't work for one of the teams as far as the interview process. But with him, I think a lot of it isn't just the injury. Um, you know, there's when I, whenever the subject of abuse comes up, you know, with a woman especially, it, that's going to cause major red flags. And I think that's what teams are going to have to really uh, delve deep into that stuff. And I think that's going to be um, make or break for him as far as, um, you know, how high he goes, how well he does during the interview process. But as far as a football player, I think he's a top 10 player in this draft talent-wise, and uh, I don't hesitate at all saying that. I think just looking at those things, um, with or without the injury, he's a top 10 player, and I think I would keep him on the board at the same time. doesn't mean if I was a GM, I would draft him at the same time, but I would have him graded as a top 10 player for sure. So the Combine is firing up this week. That's Tuesday the 26th. I think I'm right with the date on the ad. Tuesday the 26th through Monday the 4th. Uh, every year I think that 
a lot of people have overreactions uh, right off the bat, you know, that, that first couple of days after the 40s come out or the bench presses or whatever, and then it kind of tapers off as we go in the next two months until the draft. What overreactions could you see coming out of Indy right away? Well, I think the big thing is, of course, the running numbers. People are so infatuated with the 40, you know, the 40 times for these players, fringe first rounders or, you know, second or third rounders, and they put in a, an unbelievable number of 4-3, you know, as if they're a corner or they're a wide receiver, and now all of a sudden they're in the top 20 discussion. I think, you know, that tends to be – some teams really go a little bit too crazy with it, and they um, and they really are affected by those type of numbers. But I really – you know, I, I try not to be – and uh, I try to really just go off the tape. What does the tape say? Just because a guy is a 4-3 runner, if he plays you know, wide receiver or if he plays corner, doesn't mean that those skills are translatable, that he shows that on film. Is this a guy that still consistently allows separation? Or if he's a wide receiver, did you see that on film? Can he separate? Just because he's fast doesn't mean he knows how to run routes. and doesn't know how to you know, get separation down the field at all levels. So I think those things, you know, tend to be so blown out of proportion. But I think, you know, this has turned into such a media spectacle now at the Combine that more so than anything, it's developing chemistry. You know, what do you, what do the teams see when they interview these players? They all have a certain amount of players they can interview during the couple hours that they have. And uh, what do they see in that process? Can this person pick up a playbook? Can he, can he learn things quickly? Can he see things um, the mental side of the game, the medicals, the medicals are huge. So I think actually those are more important that don't get talked about because obviously everybody wants to see the, the you know the running numbers and the, you know how everybody does in that aspect of vertical and everything else, which really is not as important as far as translatable to the next level. You mentioned the running numbers there. Everyone kind of gets fascinated with the 40 times. I mean, we have we have odds on it. I keep getting emails this week with updated odds on like what Dwayne Haskins' 40 time is going to be. Is it going to be over under? I think the number was like 4.75 or 4.81, somewhere in there. Do you think anything has to do with it, kind of what they decide? Let's take Haskins, for example. I think that I saw uh, there is a report that he's going to throw out the combine, um, or I guess we could even say he's not going to throw out the combine. Whichever one, do you think it has to do with, in terms of overreactions, um, if Dwayne Haskins goes out there and he runs like a 4.85 or like a 4.9, I don't know where he's at, but let's say he does run like a really underwhelming 4.85, 4.9 for his 40, and then he doesn't decide to throw, and, and we're only looking at that 40 time, we're looking at whatever his bench is, um, and then the medicals and stuff. Do you think it kind of depends on, in terms of overreactions, does it kind of depend on what they do? For example, if he didn't throw and we only saw that 40 time, whereas if he threw and had a great throwing session, so how much of it is not actually the player itself, but what the player actually decides to do? I think, you know, that's a good question. I think that... Um... Some some teams and coaches love to see a competitive guy. And, you know, sometimes these guys, I mean, it makes you wonder if they're not willing to do it and they're perfectly healthy. What is that saying? Does this guy have doubts? Does he question himself? Does he feel, is he overconfident in his abilities? Or does he want to compete? And I think, you know, even when it comes to the senior bowl and it comes to these pre-draft festivities, I always like a guy who's willing to show his, you know, show his stuff. And if he's got some level of physical ability, he's not going to look terrible on an open air session like the combine. When, you know, he's got nobody running at him. They're not they're not team drills. You know, he's just got you know he's got all day to throw the ball. And so I think if if he doesn't want to throw at that, that would cause major red flags for me. And I'm sure it does for some coaching staffs in the NFL. So um, like I said, I think it's always good when the guys show that they're fearless and they want to show anything. As far as you know, going into the actual numbers, I think it depends on what their skill set is. Uh, you mentioned Dwayne Haskins. I don't think anybody thinks Dwayne Haskins is an elite athlete. 
I think he's a good athlete. I think, you know, whether he runs a 4.7 or a 4.9, I can't imagine that's going to affect too many people because people don't look at him as saying, we've got a mobile quarterback. They say he's got functional athleticism, a guy that can move a little bit, but he's not a great athlete. Um, you know, people look at him more so as far as the size, the arm strength, the ability, the fact that he's doesn't have a lot of starting experience, and he still had an unbelievable year this year. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think for him per se that it would really affect you. If it came to a guy that was known for his athleticism, a speed quarterback or a speed wide receiver, and he ran a, either a really fast one or a really slow one, I think that's when it would really, really affect somebody. Let's get a little bit more specific with this conversation. We've kind of started going this this direction, but let's go all the way there. What guys do you? really love on film that you think are going to completely underwhelm in Indianapolis this week? Yeah, you know, it, it's always hard for some of these um, these offensive and defensive linemen. It's not really a great, you know, the combine's not really a great highlight reel for them. So I, I don't expect any of those guys to really blow away. I mean, you know, as far as broad jump, things like that, where they can show some of their explosiveness, I think that will be impressive. Um, other guys that I think could uh, could not impress or might really – Drop the draft stock. Um, a guy that's really been talked up quite a bit is a guy, TJ Hawkinson from Iowa, tight end. He's he's kind of an all-around jack-of-all-trades player, can really get up and get the football. He's not a great athlete. You know, you look at a guy like Noah Font, his teammate, who's just an unbelievable athlete, kind of in that, um, you know, David Njoku athleticism mode from a couple years ago. But Hawkinson is a different – he's kind of an old-school um, can absolutely, you know, catch the football down the field and extend and use his hands, but he isn't quite the great athlete. So I don't think he's going to really impress in some of these, um, you know, fundamental athletic, you know, drills. At the, um, trying to think, a couple other guys that, you know, that might or might not, that might drop stock a little bit. A guy like uh, Dexter Lawrence from Clemson, he's a big bruising nose tackle. I think unless he comes in really light, I think he's going to, He's going to struggle with some of these athletic events. Um, Zach Allen, another guy with a defensive lineman who's who's not going to impress you looking at him, you know, as far as from a stature standpoint or from some of these uh, some of these activities because he's kind of a big, long, strong left defensive end type. So I'd imagine he's not going to be overly impressive. Those are just a few guys I think of off the top of my head. You mentioned Zach Allen, uh, Dexter Lawrence. I want to ask you about a lineman that's getting a ton of attention. In terms of him being here, let me ask let me ask it this way. So Kyler Murray, he's getting all the, the kind of the polarizing prospect attention this year. He's clearly the guy that, that's going to have everybody talking leading up to the draft, draft night, have a lot of people divided. But for me, in terms of polarized, I think the talk surrounding Josh Allen is extremely interesting. He's also dividing a lot of people. I was on Mel Kuyper's mock draft teleconference last week, and uh, for those of you who are listening to the pod right now, I'll play some of those clips later in today's show. But I was on that teleconference, and I got his take on Allen. Um, he said that, Kuyper being he, he said that Allen isn't that far behind Bosa for his top prospects. So, again, I'll play those comments later. But, Daniel, where do you fall on Josh Allen? Which group are you in on him? I'm not as high as others are. I um, I never have. I mean, I um, you know, when I watched him a lot of the senior tape, I mean, his junior tape, last season and uh, people were talking about him as a uh, really high draft pick if he has a good senior season and I just didn't see it at all in his junior tape and then I turned on the senior tape and I thought to myself yeah look, he's absolutely gotten better I, I see improvement uh during his year you know during his years at Kentucky he um he had a really good senior season this year for Kentucky I just don't I'm not sold on his game-changing ability I don't see an elite 
rusher. And I think that's where I, I struggle with him is I see I see some traits there. Obviously the size, you love the fact that he can he can drop some and you know he has experience being used, you know, if you wanted to play in a three four defense, he could potentially do that. Um, but I just don't see an elite rusher on, on tape. I think he um, he's, he's far too often he's stuck on blocks and he doesn't always bring a you know a ton of our you know our pass rush arsenal to the table. And I think uh, he's frustrating for me. I like him. I just don't love him. Another player getting a a wide range of projections. Josh Jacobs. So you mentioned him earlier. Consensus seems to be that. The guy is an athletic stud. Um, you know, don't really let the, the fairly pedestrian numbers fool you. I know he was he was really efficient his first couple of years. A little bit of injuries, uh, sophomore in 2017. The efficiency numbers dipped a little bit last. So I think he was around like five or 5.2 yards per carry, somewhere in there. Uh, but he showed receiving. And it seems to be that everyone thinks that he's he's definitely an athletic stud. But it, it seems like the draft slot is not really as agreed upon. So is Jacobs your RB one? And what's the earliest you could see him going? I love Jacobs. I think um, there's a lot of things to like about him. And uh, some people will say the fact that he hasn't been the bell cow for Alabama. You know, he split carries during his career. He's never been the uh, the feature back. But, you know, you can turn that around and also say now he also has the fact that he doesn't have anywhere near the wear and tear on his, on his physique, on his frame, as we've seen with some of these Alabama running backs in the past. You know, they have these these guys that have 12, 1,500 carries on them, and they come out into the draft, and uh, when they come out to the NFL, and they really struggle. I mean, their bodies are already beaten up so much, whereas Jacobs is not like that. He's been a, you know, a situational, a rotational running back for for the ties for the last few years, and uh, I think he, um, I think he's awesome. He fits all, you know, the criteria you're looking for. He's strong, really physical, outstanding contact balance. Screws on his he can create for himself. I mean, there's so many games I watched this year where he, you know, you, you don't see any possibility he's going to gain more than a yard, you know, with what's available to him. And somehow he'll get come out with 10, 12, 15 yards, you know. And I think that's his, his best quality is his creativity. Let's end here. I want to ask you who you are, what guys are you buying that, that not everybody else is buying right now? You know who I really, really like is um, – He's, he's got a hard last name to pronounce, but uh, his his name is um, Amani Arind, you know, Oruwakawaria. I forget how you pronounce it, but it's uh, you know he's he's uh, his family is from Africa, but he plays for Penn State and he's also a one year starter, and um, I really really like him. I mean, we watched the film from this year, and he just impressed me in every game. Shut down one side of the field, long range, physical guy, really grand zero separation. Uh, competes for everything. You know, he makes whoever he's playing against, every receiver, fight for every ball. You know, he contests. He's just a really, he's just a stud. And actually, I have him ranked as my number one corner. I think, I think he should be in that top twenty discussion. That is Daniel Parler Greco. You can find him on Twitter at DTB Draft Scout. And I mentioned you can find his uh, draft guide, twenty nineteen draft guide, on Amazon. Hey, Dan, I really appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy the combine this week. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Like I mentioned at the open, I had some media time with Mel Kuyper Jr. last week, and I wrote something short on Herosports.com about Josh Allen versus Nick Bosa, two guys that Kuyper doesn't think are separated by that big of a gap at all. And we just got uh, Daniel Parlagreco's take on Allen, so I have a few things here from Kuyper, a few pieces from him. First is his take on that Bosa-Allen gap, and then the second piece kind of continues on that, talking about 
a scenario in which Bosa does not go number one to the Cardinals. Either they don't take him or they trade out. Somebody comes up to get a quarterback, whoever they want. But Bosa does not go number one to the Cardinals. If the Cardinals were to move out of there and then Bosa and Allen were available, both of them were available to the 49ers at number two. That's the second piece from him. And then the third piece from Kuiper is Jarrett Stidham. Daniel talked about Will Greer a little bit, kind of being a guy that some teams could reach for a little bit earlier than some expect. And in that third piece, Stidham gets into, excuse me, Kuiper gets into Stidham a little bit. Here are those clips from Mel Kuiper Jr. Well, I think Bosa's the guy. I mean, I, when I say the only thing with Bosa is the durability. If it wasn't for the injury a senior in high school and the injury this year, yeah, it wouldn't be any, any, anybody anywhere close to him. And then Allen had the unbelievable year. I mean, his numbers went up from you know, what they were, which wasn't bad. I mean, he had, you know, it wasn't like he wasn't productive. He was a solid player, but he became a great player uh, this past year. So, I mean, because his numbers improved dramatically. Seven sacks to 17, tackles for loss doubled. And uh, all of a sudden, then, this year, he became a, kind of a one-man wrecking crew, and he had some help on that defense. You know, Alani Johnson, the corner, Edwards, the safety, uh, Beatty, they had some really good players on that defense uh, beyond just Josh Allen, but he was the kind of the cornerstone. He was the centerpiece of it all. Uh, with his length and his size, and his speed and the kind of kid he is, yeah, he's gonna, he's right there. I mean, but I still think give Bosa the edge. But you know, there's no question if you're looking for an edge rusher in the 49ers or the Jets, Josh Allen. If people say trade out of there, if you trade out of there, you're taking yourself out of the Josh Allen situation. I don't think, I don't think the 49ers or Jets would want to do that. So yeah, you know, I know the Jets would like to pick up other draft picks and this and that. But you move out of three, you don't get Josh Allen if he's there. And I'm not convinced he'll be there at three. I think the 49ers could take him at two. Arizona could also trade out of there, maybe allow somebody to move up to get Dwayne Haskins. Either way, you could. The 49ers are either going to be looking at Allen or Bosa. Maybe both if the quarterback goes one, but I think Josh Allen fits what they want. Bosa would too, but I think Allen, with having Solomon Thomas and Buckner and Armstead, you need an edge pass rusher. Buckner really came through with a big year, but Allen would really help that front seven. Yeah, I mean, Stidham's interesting. You go back a couple years ago, you know, he's, he's putting up the big numbers, and you thought it would carry over. Things didn't come together this year uh, after, you know, being Washington in that opener. Um, but he's got the arm talent. And from the pocket, he can move well enough. Uh, you know, I, I thought he impressed. And I know Lewis Riddick even pointed out yesterday when we were talking about that Stidham kind of got his attention on the field at the Senior Bowl practices more than any quarterback down there. That it was Stidham who got Lewis uh, like, uh, to really say, hey, move him up and, and get him into that discussion as a quarterback that's a little underrated. So, yeah, I think Stidham, you know, what he did at Baylor, then Auburn, I mean, he showed that he could, at one point, I thought he could be a first or second round pick. So he's got talent. Like I said, I don't think he gets out of the third round. It wouldn't shock him if he went mid to late second. As I touched on with Daniel, I think that the varying opinions on Josh Allen make him definitely the most polarizing player in this draft that is not Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray is getting all the attention every single day. This morning, we had his measurables on ESPN again. We get that he measured in at 5'10", 195 at Oklahoma. I don't know how many times we have to see that. So outside of Kyler Murray, I think Josh Allen is definitely the most polarizing player in this draft. I think if you were to grab a list of like 10, 12, 15 draft analysts, you're not going to find that much consensus on Allen. Yeah, there are groupings of guys that are either high on him, and there's a grouping of guys just below that. And there's a grouping of guys saying he's a mid-rounder at best or even worse. But I think that much variance in opinion for a guy that could be the number two pick, we'll even say top three pick, that much variance in opinion for a guy that will be probably be a top three pick, that's kind of what's blowing my mind as we're here combine week only two months away from the draft. 
I get it like back in August or September if there's that much varying opinion on a guy when we still have a full season to play from a former low-rated recruit that kind of came out of nowhere. I would understand it back in August or September when there's still an entire three and a half months to play football. But having that much variance right now, eight, nine weeks away from the draft, when we're sitting here in Indy at the Combine, I think that's pretty remarkable. Okay, I will be back next Tuesday. That is March 5th. That episode, like all episodes, will be available on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher. And the following week, the following week is going to be kind of something interesting. That's Tuesday, March 12th. I'm working on a show as we gear up for March Madness. Remember, Selection Sunday, that's March 17th. First four games then begin two days later on March 19th. And the first round begins on Thursday, March 21st. So that's coming us coming up on us pretty quickly here. Just four weeks away from the first round. So uh, to get back to it, Tuesday, March 12th. That's two shows from now. I'm working on a show that's entirely tourney related, but with a much different angle that I don't think is ever talked about. I don't ever see it talked about, maybe in small doses. But I'm going to do a full show with hopefully three to four guests that all have, we'll say, something tourney related in common. So again, that'll drop on Tuesday, March 12th on iTunes, on Spreaker. Hit subscribe and you'll get all episodes downloaded immediately. Thanks again to Mitch and Daniel for their time enjoying the show this week. Thanks again to Mel for his time on last week's teleconference. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today, it had been a while. And we forgot each other's name. But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between